What's going on, everyone? This will be episode, I always do that. I don't know why. <laughs> this will be episode 89 of the Strength and Success Show. We'll just wait for Riley to hop on here and send a join request, and we'll get her on here. This one's going to be titled Longevity, which is something that gets lost upon. And I have an interesting reversal of this next week that we've already talked to Riley about for an episode. But um, this is going to be something that we ought, there's the join request, so it'll probably pause for a few seconds for to training because we think very short term instead of very long term. Should pop through any second here. There we go. Hello. <laughs> oh, you're just sitting there like Batman. <laughs> How are you doing? Tired, but good. It has been an interesting week in powerlifting, for sure. Um, We'll try not to bore anyone with that. I'm sure people have had their fill, so we'll go right to how you were doing. Tired, what's going on in your world? Um, really nothing, you know, just training, trying to not suck anymore with training, um, taking care of my psycho dog, um, writing more articles. I've been really busy with articles lately, so that's pretty cool. Um, so really nothing other than professionally, which is fine. I am sick. I, you know, I don't really have any significant problems in my life other than having to get, you know, not having to, but trying to get everything done in a timely manner and a responsible manner, which is kind of funny that people were, were uh, so focused on the topic that people tend to lose some of themselves. But let's go into longevity. And I brought this up, I think, last week or two weeks ago to you about this. And it was something in the topic of, you know, those who stay the healthiest and do the most, the longest, end up becoming their strongest. And it's something I've heard many, many years, over the years, I should say. And it's something that gets lost because creating strength, creating weight loss, creating weight gain, creating a stimulus, creating a better life, uh, creating opportunities, the process of that is incredibly simple. The follow through is incredibly difficult because you then have to do those tasks and live those tasks day in and day out, which is why sometimes we always say, don't focus on the micro, focus on the macro. And strength and strength performance really is a very long-term macroscopic scale. I don't know anyone, uh, barring an injury, who lifts the same weights they did usually five years ago unless they've stopped or they've burned out or they've gotten hurt, like I said prior to that. If you can stay healthy by being smart, by being patient and by being diligent, you're going to be significantly stronger or significantly farther and significantly better along if you learn how to encompass that patience. And I, I bring this up because every athlete after they compete, not every athlete, the majority of athletes after they compete will then send me a a list of lifts after they've just competed and haven't even absorbed or had any time to recover. Do you think I can hit this by my next meet? Or there's a meet in four months. Do you think I can squat this in the next four months? And usually it's a little bit out of their range, which is fine. I don't mind people aiming high, but they're looking for some like validation or some secret system. And I'm like, I don't know. Can you, because it's not up to the program. I write it's up to the way you perform it. And it's up to the way you perform your life and live your life and have your habits. So I always laugh when they're asking me permission for this as if, can I achieve this? It's like, it really isn't up to me. It's up to you. And it's up to your longevity. Why I say longevity, because when we think of longevity, we think of like life extension and living to your 60s. But longevity is, can you do the tasks necessary all day, 
every day for months and years on end to hit these goals you want. That's longevity. Because if like New Year's is an example, how many of you have made a New Year's resolution you've already broke? You have no longevity. You have no skin in the game. You have no reason to commit to that. Longevity is a commitment. And anything in life that's worth having, you have to commit to. It's not just going to happen on accident. That's a wish. So you have to commit to longevity of the process and not expect a result tomorrow. But you have to do the work day in, day out. And uh, that's why I wanted to focus on longevity because so many people are so focused on everything out there in the world, they're losing sight of what actually matters to them, which is their responsibilities and their goals. And those are the things that matter when it comes to longevity and success is doing what you need to do day in and day out. I for the most part think that uh social media is very positive or it can be i guess i guess it can be um based on how you curate your own social media because obviously our instagrams our facebook's our tiktoks all that stuff it's all curated by what you decide to follow or what you allow to follow you or what interests you search for your, your social media is curated. And uh, this kind of kind of a different topic, but I'll get to the point. Like your social media is, if social media is causing you distress, it's because you set it up poorly for yourself. Like you didn't, you're allowing people to follow you that you don't want to, or you're following people that make you feel bad about yourself or whatever. So your social media is carefully curated by what you want. So you can't blame social media for you being in a bad mood. If something triggers you, you have to remove it. Um, I use that mute button so often um, <laughs> on social media. When something starts to make me feel bad, mute gets hit so fast. So your social media is carefully curated. And I think that the one downfall of social media within powerlifting, barring all the other stuff that's happening, but uh, one downfall of social media is that it causes people to want that instant gratification because you're constantly following um lifters around you or the top level lifter and they are seemingly constantly making progress you know like you you know let's say you have a favorite lifter who's in that like upper echelon elite type of uh category and you watch their stuff and it's like you're like wow they are deadlifting 300 more pounds than me and they're still hitting prs and blah blah, blah. and you're like why am i not moving the needle fast enough and i think that social media can kind of become this like black hole where you lose sight of time um me i in general i am not very good at um differentiating time like i could have said something 15 minutes ago and i'll be like i don't know i said that like a couple hours ago like that's just i'm not that's never been something i'm very good at like gauging time but i think that in social media terms, we tend to kind of get lost in the abyss of time with social media, where it's like, you don't realize that these people that you're following have been working for this PR or that goal for months and years on end, you just see the result because that's all they post. Most people only post their good stuff, which is fine. You are allowed to post whatever you want on social media. If you just want it to be a highlight reel that makes you feel good, then let it, uh, you know, but like you people get lost with that and they're like well i've been i haven't hit a bench pr in six months or something you know and it's like for one bench is a very hard number to move the needle on just because it requires a lot like more smaller muscle groups and like it just doesn't it doesn't move as fast or as in big increments of um squat and deads and like especially with like a lot of women that i work with you know it's 
it's hard to go like if you're you have a hundred pound bench and you want to go to 105 that's hard it doesn't seem like it would be a lot but a five pound jump at that weight is going to be hard to make those type of gains five percent exactly five that's very that's very challenging to make that type of um improvement on bench in just a short period of time and so you know like you get people get so lost in how much time everything takes and usually the thing that i try to like say to a client when they're having these moments i've had these moments too is well do you do you plan on stopping competing anytime soon and well they're like well, no i want to do this for as long as i can and it's like okay so uh, you have to realize that eventually you're going to level out. You know, like when you first start powerlifting, you get all the newbie gains. Uh, your total is probably going to be like your total from your first meet to your second meet is probably going to astronomically improve, whether that be because you got more, you figured it out, you got more confident, you hired a coach. Like there are so many reasons why usually that first to second meet, you have such a large increase in total. After that is when it starts to dissipate. Like, I think that, like, it's like after, like, your first three to four years is when those newbie gains kind of wear off. You are a little bit, you're getting a little bit more seasoned. Um, you don't take it, you aren't taking advantage of as many of those increases or that, like, body, those body awareness gains that you're figuring out. It slows down. Um, so if you're planning on powerlifting for as long as you can, you know, and if you're like, oh, well, I'm in my 30s and I definitely want to compete until I'm 60, like, 30 years for you to still like make improvements on so if you're that like hard on about making like a 10 pound uh 10 pound weight increase in like three months or something on your pr like that realistically if you try to do that every three months over the next 30 years you're gonna be benching a lot like unreasonable amounts of weight you know what i mean so it's like you have to take in perspective how long you're going to actually want to do this if you're someone who like i've heard of people that are like okay well i'm 25 and i don't want to compete after i'm 30. like yeah then you have it you have a set timeline of like okay i'm you know once i turn 30 i don't want to compete anymore so these are my goals this is how long i had to take them you have a more finite ability to be like, this is how, these are the steps that I need to take. These are the increments of increases that I need to take um, to hit these goals by 30. But if you're someone who has zero plans of like stopping unless like you just start to hate it, you it's not something you can prioritize anymore. You get injured and you can't, or you find something else. Like if you have no plans to necessarily stop doing this, you have to focus less on today and tomorrow and focus more on next year and the year after that. But it's just that that vision of time gets really, really lost when we spend two, three, four hours on social media every day watching everyone else lift and hit PRs. And it's just your your perception gets so skewed by seeing everyone else hit these PRs and make this progress. And you feel like you're not making any, but you are. You just discount it because your perception is skewed. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things that go into someone's I'm not saying everyone, but there's a lot of other things that go into someone's regression as well. Like you said, if someone's in a beginning stage, you're going to grain very rapidly. You know, I, I saw, I've seen a coach who keeps posting all these, like this person gained 240 pounds in their total in six months. Like they do, they came to you from day one. They're only six months into lifting. Of course they did. <laughs> that doesn't take any skill. That's just getting under a bar three days a week. And then there's the other aspect of someone makes astronomical gains. They've been doing this for five years and you're like, you don't know what else they're doing. I'll leave it at that because the sports got to a point where people are really stretching the boundaries of pharmacology and it's not safe. And everyone's joking about being a lab rat and a lab road different forms, comments and question marks. And that's a reality. People don't know what the repercussions of these things are 
it's not widely studied and they're experimental things and, and people are pushing that envelope and you're seeing a lot of people progress because they're willing to push that envelope. You can't compare yourself if you're eating and recovering to someone who's pushing that envelope who's also eating, sleeping and recovering. And it, it gets very unfair. It's fair because it's an untested sport versus, or tested sport. But in that aspect, it, it, it's unfair to judge your progress against theirs because some of these people are willing to do so much more than you are just for that 50 pound increase. Yeah, it's for, I mean, like, there, there's the reason why comparison is the thief of joy is a very popular quote is because it's very true. Like you, you're not, you're not someone else, you're you. So that's the only thing that you should really be concerned with. And that's so hard. Like having those blinders is so hard to do with social media, because like, that's the whole point of it is like, you get a glimpse into so-and-so's life and like what they're doing. So it's really hard to have blinders. It's like, it's hard to pay attention to what other people are doing and like supporting your friends or companies that you like um, while also having those blinders because you will see, you know, like, oh, my, my really good friend just like hit PRs across the board and like I haven't in X, Y, Z months, you know? So it's really hard to have those blinders, but like you have to realize that they aren't you. And like your time will come too if you're, we talked about this many times, if you're putting in the work and you're doing the things that you're supposed to, you will get what you want so it's just if you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing then you know that those rewards are coming you just have to be patient for them well i think that's fair to uh, jump into questions at this point remember you guys can ask questions on the live recording live broadcast we also have questions that people have sent us in our store q a's throughout the weeks and we have a couple questions back up for the last two or three weeks that will help us through today what's our first question rather well there was one that was earlier up and it was like um i think it said is there is it okay to do meets 11 to 12 weeks apart you're competing in a sport for you compete as much as you want to or as little as you want to there are certainly athletes i work with who literally just compete once a year in their local meet and they're fine with that and there are athletes that i have who compete three or four times a year and that's what they want to do i have gone on the gauntlet of a lot of competitions or little competitions and really there's not a significant difference in the experience i have as far as fun and enjoyment there's gonna be a significant difference in what your expectations can be. So if you're competing every 11 to 12 weeks, you can't expect to add 30 to 40 pounds to your total every single time you're competing, if you're competing four or five times a year. You might be looking at, okay, if I'm going to this meet, let me just make sure I prioritize my squat and try to up my squat five or 10 pounds and whatever happens on bench and deadlift is whatever happens. Like you have to pick a little bit smaller goals to make sure you're walking away from the meet satisfied. Uh, there are some people who literally, that's just their social aspect. There's a few people you'll see them at every single meet that do every single meet that don't care other than the fact that they're getting to see people they like and enjoy and have a good time and lift some heavy weight and it's fun for them. You see that every meet. Uh, when I was a little bit more involved with USPA Florida back in the day, uh, four or five years ago, there was people who, and they have nine to 10 meets a year, there was people who would do every single one of those. Zero PR, zero progress or anything, but they had the biggest smile. They were just happy to be there and have fun. You know, so it's, it's one of those things that, yeah, you absolutely can if that's what you want to do. Just make sure you're understanding what your expectations are. Are you going there to have a good time or are you going there to move your total? The, if your goal is to move your total, you're probably going to want to take longer and longer and longer in between meets to spend time building, growing, refining, improving. Yeah, the, I think there's been three, there's been three times where I have done meets that were sub six weeks apart. Um, I think I've done meets, I think I've done Twice I've done meets that were four weeks apart. And I think once, I think between um, Showdown and Surge, I want to say that was six or seven weeks apart or something like that. Um, yeah, seven. And uh, it's, it doesn't always feel great. You know, like your body is kind of tired. Um, but like for, in my case, 
two of those meets, I went up a weight class for the second meet. Like the first, the, between Showdown and Surge, two years ago, and then last year between American and Pro and Surge, I went 148 for the first meet, and then I went 165 for the second meet. So that helped me to improve my total um, for that second meet. You know, that's because obviously that's that's your goal. You know, you want to move the needle with your total. But for me, it was easier to get a better total with that short turnaround just because I did I didn't cut. Um, so like first meets, you know, I like first one I walked in at like 145, and then the second one I think I walked in at 155. Uh, second set of meets I think I walked was 146, and then 154. So you know, 10 pound ish difference between the two. I didn't cut anything. I wasn't depleted. I was able to walk away with a better total in a different weight class. So I think that that's one thing to keep in mind too is like if you're if you're constantly cutting weight classes and you're doing meets that close you're probably missing out on some total gains you know uh, if you kind of fluctuate between between two weight classes like i do it might be better if you're going to do meets back to back to do one at your lower weight and then the second one at a heavier at the um, weight class above so that way you don't cut and then you can kind of have fun you can put less stress on your body but still manage to compete that second time so i think it really just kind of depends on like what your goal is of course you can do it you could do multiple meets back to back four weeks apart it just it's not you're not gonna feel good probably you know like i can't guarantee that you're gonna have a lot of great results um there's always risk for injury with those kind of things with back-to-back -back meets and the high fatigue so it just really depends on your goal but uh, 11 to 12 weeks isn't out of the ordinary. I've had a lot of clients who've done that just because the first one was the first or second one they want to do with their friends. And then the other one they like actually cared about. Um, that seems to be the, that seems to be the thing is that one of them is the one that they actually care about. And the other one is just one for fun or because someone wanted them to do it with them or whatever. So usually when they're close like that, I ask the athlete, which one's a little bit more important to them. And then I have them, I, focus more on that prep than I do on the other one, or at least put more of the eggs in the one basket that's more important to them. Yeah, you touched over a great point. I want to retouch. Um, why are you cutting? You know, if you're going to compete frequently, why are you cutting weight? Like I have a lifter right now who's been PRing across the board and he's getting ready for a meet. And then all of a sudden we start slowing down his progress. He's getting lethargic and he's fatiguing faster. I'm like, why are you getting so tired all of a sudden? He's like, oh, I'm cutting. I've lost 10 pounds in three weeks. I'm like, why? He's like, well, because the meet's coming up. I'm like, are you breaking any state records, federation records, anything? He's like, no. And I was like, are you going for anything specific that you need to be in that weight class? No. Why are you cutting? Because <laughs> the goal is to improve the total. So if there's not like a record at stake or some type of qualifying total or division you need to be in for whatever reason, why are you cutting? It's the dumbest thing people do in this sport is cut down for no particular reason. So if there's not an, an, uh, a reward for that effort, it's just going to – take away from your total in the long run, which like Riley said, the important part is if you're competing often, your goal is still to move your total. And that should be the, that should be the main focus. Yeah, like, like the first one, the first one, I think I want, it was like a four, four seventy five dots or whatever is what would get me the invite to a meet. And then the second one that I did then back to back or was cutting for this was the 500 dots. Right. That's in both. Right. It wasn't fun. It wasn't great, but like those were the, those were the goals. So that's for me why I cut. There's a specific, there's a specific dots for me that I would like, uh, but I did achieve that. So that's yeah. nice. There's a question that popped up. How do you improve my bracing and squat? I feel like I lose it on the way down. So there's two ways to look at this is, is one is how are you actually bracing? And two is, are you hinging or tilting your pelvis? Somebody who's losing their brace on the way down, chances are, isn't actually hinging at the hips, but is actually tilting their pelvis into anterior tilt to try and get their hips behind them. There's a difference between 
hinging and tilting of the pelvis going into lumbar extension. So chances are you're probably dropping into lumbar extension, which means you need to have more motor pattern work to actually stay in that more neutral zone. So I would prioritize learning how to brace and feeling your brace with anterior core loaded squats. So goblet squats, zombie squats, zercher squats, front squats, all those are anterior loaded. Learn what the brace actually feels like and then transfer that to a tempo squat where you're learning how to not tilt your pelvis back and actually hold position all the way down. So tempos and pauses are what you need to focus on. Not so much how much you have in the bar, but how well you move the bar for a little while and then start reloading as you build back up. Uh, losing your, your brace on the way down usually means you probably didn't actually have the brace in the first place, to be honest with you. So you have to learn how to brace first. There's, there's a little bit of a difference between just taking a deep breath and actually bracing. There was a client that I used to work with, uh, Nikki, and one of her favorite ways to kind of like pattern herself for a brace was she would lay down on the ground, supine, and she would put a like a small, like a small, either a small dumbbell, like 2.5 or five, or even like a five pound plate right on her belly. And she would focus on trying to breathe that weight up because the whole point is like, that's, that's what I see the most often is people will take their their quote unquote brace and all that moves is their chest and their shoulders up and down, which is actually brace, breaking your torso stack. So what she would do is she would put that weight like over her belly button and really focus on taking a deep breath, like either, um, I think she did nasal breaths. She would take deep nasal breaths and focus on trying to push that weight, like push her belly out. So that way she was moving that weight. Cause that's where you're supposed to breathe is down there by your belly button. We even say like down into your balls or down into your uterus or whatever. Um, so that was one thing that she would do to pattern herself to think like, okay, this is where my breath goes. And then every time she did that, she would do a lot better with bracing. Um, there's a similar question to this one. So I'll ask it now. Sure. It, it, if you're trying to learn to brace, is it best to use your belt or go beltless? So this is a little bit of a gray area because obviously we want to learn how to control our torso. I actually just answered this personally because they sent me the question. It's one of my clients sent me the question. Uh, he started and he had this incredible shift to his torso and he sent me an angle. I was able to see him like, cause we were like, okay, let's take the shoes off and see your feet. Let's figure out why you're twisting. And sure as shit, he was going into anterior pelvic tilt and not bracing his all and his body was compensating. So it was one of those things where I was like, okay, we actually have to start over and repattern and learn how to brace. And that was the exact pattern I followed was it was like, goblet squats, zercher squats, zombie squats, learning how to stack his anterior core and not tilt his pelvis back because he wasn't going to be able to hold the weight if he did that. So the belt will have a role because scientifically speaking, we're going to be able to create more intra-abdominal pressure, which is the actual bracing with the belt on than without it. But I don't want him to only rely on the belt. So if the movement doesn't necessitate a belt, so like the zombie squats, the front squats, the goblet squats, I prefer them to be beltless so he can learn how to feel his brace and build his trunk strength. But if he's doing a high bar squat, back squat, SSB squat, and it starts to get the heavy enough load, I want him to use the belt so he can use more load because that's how we're gonna get stronger. And he also has to test that bracing skill under some load. I don't want them to think that they can just go beltless and learn how to brace because learning how to use the belt is also a skill. Everyone's going to be stronger for the most part in their competition lifts with their belt on, but you have to learn how to use it. Like I love doing my deadlifts beltless um, because I don't get a significant amount of carryover with the belt on for sumo anyways, but I will still put the belt on five to six weeks out from meet. So I start reingraining that pattern of using the belt and getting built with it. And then it also helps me to be a regulator during my training. So I'm not overdoing it by going beltless for that. But my squats, when I'm above like 80%, that belt goes on, especially if it's rep work. Even if it's like 75, I got to do sets of five, the belt's going on because my torso is going to fatigue faster. So there's a benefit to doing both. The priming work 
work, the torso work, the learning work, do without the belt. The main work, use your belt by all means and keep that skill set of learning how to expand against the belt all the way around the belt from front, back, and side, and not just rely on the belt. Because that's part of the reason why he went to that torso twist in the first place was he was just relying on the belt and hadn't learned how to actually use it and stack inside his own body. Bracing is not, like Larry said, it's not just breathing. It's filling your entire cavity with air, not expanding your cavity. It's compressing the cavity down like a, like a bullet. I feel like a pussy because I'm pretty sure at like 70% on squats, I put my belt on, but uh, <laughs> that, that's a different story. Um, but yeah, like the, the issue too with people belting sometimes is like, for some reason, people think that the belt has to be like corset level tightness and their belt is so tight that when they're going to breathe, they have nowhere to breathe, but around it. Um, like there are so many times where a lifter, like, you know, they're, it's like their belt sets are better than their belted sets because they put their belt on and like this person could be 110 pounds but their belt is so tight that it looks like they have muffin top above and below it you know what i mean so it's like it, it it's not just making your belt so tight that it's like you think that it's doing something because it's not doing anything if it's really tight especially if you're not even able to breathe into it the whole point like trevor mentioned is to breathe into it like i always tell lifters you have to breathe into that belt like you're trying to explode it off of you like all the way around like it should be uncomfortable so when you when your belt is latched or tightened or whatever it is you should still be able to fit like a finger or two between your stomach and the belt because the whole point is to expand it out. So if your belt is so tight that you can't breathe into it either, and you're breathing away from it, and you're like, uh, they call it like closed and open scissor, if you're like opening the scissor of your torso, then it's not doing any benefit to wear that belt anyways. So it's not just put a belt on, tighten it as tight as you can. Like I, the amount of people that I've seen uh, use the mono or use the rack to tighten their belt, and then they just chest breathe. And I'm like, there was no point for you to do any of that. Worse, not better. I've seen that a thousand times. You're yeah, right. you just wasted your you just wasted your time. So uh, there is a difference in breathing too for bracing when you're belted or beltless, and it's not it it requires that same amount of like expanding your expanding your belly, expanding your diaphragm. So just because you throw a belt on doesn't mean that you have to focus less on creating that intra-abdominal pressure. Yeah, there's another question here. Are box squats beneficial for the raw lifter? And I'm gonna caveat that with, I don't care if you're geared raw or like bench only. If there's an exercise, it has a purpose. The question isn't if it's beneficial for the raw lifter, it's what's your intent and purpose of the exercise and what are you looking to get from it? If you're doing a wide stance, sit back, box squat, like a multiply lifter and you're raw, you're probably not gonna benefit from that because it doesn't match your squat mechanics, unless for some reason you needed that. So it's not that it's a box squat is, you just wanna call it a box squat, is bad for a raw lifter, it's what's the intent. I've seen coaches use box squats below parallel to help a lifter identify and find breaking depth. I've seen box squats used where it's single leg and they're sitting back to the box to work on hip and knee stability. That's a fucking box squat and it has an intent. So that's beneficial for the raw lifter. I've done that with a lot of clients when they have poor stability and tracking. Uh, I've got a video up where I show the difference between raw squats for a box squat of just sitting down to the box and staying tight, not sitting back and not rocking back versus the multiply where it was the wider stance sitting all the way back, rocking through to create that, that stop of eccentric, concentric and you know getting used to the suit, be able to power up. It's not that an exercise is ever bad or not useful. It's what is your reason for having it there? What's the intent of the exercise? If you don't have a reason or an intent behind it, then the exercise doesn't belong in there, regardless of what. Yeah, there, um, 
there's a similar question that I have written down that is when box squatting should you change your foot stance and like it, this all this all depends on the intention of the movement like I I specifically if I have a box squat in there for a lifter I specifically tell them that they should not that they do not release tension as soon as they feel like their butt or their hamstrings touch that box they are instructed to power back up like just like just kiss the box with your butt or your hamstrings or whatever but there is no release of tension because with a lifter if you release your tension at the bottom of the squat in the hole then that's where you lose your lift entirely like you have to the whole point is to create tensions that way you can spring back up out of the hole so if you're releasing tension in the hole what are you going to do when you have no support of a box or you're not you're not geared so you're raw we you have no support to bring you back up you're just going to be stuck in the bottom so that's why i I don't, uh, I don't always program, I don't program box squats a lot, but if I do program them, it's for specifically to maintain tension in the bottom. I have programmed box squats with that, like sit back, and that's more for like anterior chain work or sorry, posterior uh. chain work than anterior chain, chain work. So it really just kind of depends on the intention. Um, I would say like with the question of changing your foot stance, if you need to work on like your hips, then yeah, you could go wider. If you need to focus more on quads, you could go more narrow. But realistically, like, if you're programming box squats the way that I like to program them, or Trevor likes to program them, where you don't release on the box, it's probably best to use your normal squat stance. So that way you can learn to hold that tension in the bottom with your normal squat stance, like practice how you play. Absolutely. Uh, what's our next question? Um... I have poor external rotation on my left shoulder. Does using mixed grip on deads add risk to injury? Uh, oh, this one came up a while ago. I remember this one. And the lack of the ability to externally rotate of the underhand does increase the risk of injury. Because, you know, people will say, though, injury risk is only a matter of fatigue and overtraining and whatnot. You're more at risk. Like, that's true to an extent. That increases your odds of injury because your body's fatigued and it can't withstand and eventually gives out. But if you can't achieve a safe position using mixed grip and your arm is stuck in internal rotation, you're going to end up bending the arm to reach the bar and that puts your bicep in a bad position. That had nothing to do with fatigue, that poor mobility. So there is a risk of a mixed grip on deadlift if you have exceptionally poor mobility and poor mechanics because you know, even if fatigue isn't there, eventually the load is going to exceed the strength capacity of the bicep or bicep tendon. So it's not the mixed grip that's harmful. It's the lack of mobility that puts you at risk. So I never want to say that mixed grip is, is you know, dangerous. If you have the adequate mobility, perfectly fine. Can it create a strength balance? Yeah, because you're using one side more than the other, but that's why you switch grips from time to time on your warmups. But the idea is to, if you struggle with the external rotation, the idea would be to strengthen the external and stretch your internal rotator so you can achieve a better position, which is easily done. You know, anytime you're in the gym before you leave or before you start, add a set of dumbbell external rotations of some kind to strengthen that pattern. And every time you're in the gym or before you leave, add stretching of the pecs and lats so you can achieve a better position. I have a, a video that was done a while ago with Tim actually, where it was the C stretch. You put your arm up on the wall and just turn away because that is externally rotating the arm. So I, the camera, but I'm turning my thumb away from my body backwards, the arm is straight, and I'm using the wall to push my body in the direction. It stretches. It stretches the bicep a little bit. It puts you in extra rotation so you can reach and get the underhand on the bar without twisting the bar that way. Uh, another option is to just bring that underhand out one finger so you have more room to do so. But ideally, you don't want to limit yourself with mobility restrictions because then you're fighting the weight of the bar and fighting the restriction of your body. That's one of the reasons why mobility has taken precedence as being so important for lifters now is 
They can achieve so much better structural positions and movement efficiency by not having to fight their body and the load. That's what people didn't understand at first. Like, oh, stretching. We don't do that shit. Well, that's why you suck. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. There's so many people like, yeah, I don't do that shit. I don't warm up. I don't stretch. Good. I will out total you and my lifters because they do. Because you don't take the time to do the small things that can make your big things easier. Also, the longevity of the sport. Or well, you in the sport. There's another reason to keep going. Oh, dynamite dropping. <laughs> I mean, if you have poor external rotation on your shoulder, it's not only going to present as a problem on your deadlifts either. Like, it's going to present as a problem on your squats and your bench as well. So, yeah, like, you can, you can improve it on – you can improve your deadlift or make it less sketchy, I guess, like Trevor mentioned, where you alternate your mix. I usually recommend that because it seems like uh, I don't, when I was conventioning all the time and I wasn't pulling sumo, I do pull mix with conventional. And I noticed that I would have like that slight lean because one would be a little bit further down than the other. I think it's my right side. I can't remember now. Thanks for lean. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what it is. It's, it's cause I'm a thug. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah I, I am thug spice um but i would always switch my in my warm-ups i would switch my underhand to be the opposite way so like my left my left is my underhand so in warm-ups i'd switch where my right is the underhand and then just switch back for the main stuff to kind of like keep me even with the deadlift but if it's if it's presenting as an issue on one lift it's going to eventually present as an issue on all the lifts if you have poor external rotation in your squat um you're going to probably round forward coming out of the hole you're going to lose position um same thing with bench is probably going to make it a, you're going to have a harder time retracting to protract with your bench so focusing on improving that external rotation isn't going to just help your deadlifts because you pull mixed grip. It's going to help all your other lifts too and hold position better. Okay. Um, how to fight tendonitis in prep? How to fight? You put your gloves on. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of the cure. It's such an old expression, but it still holds true. This is one of those things where people love low bar and their volume low bar and go crazy low bar. Some people are more susceptible to low bar compression than others. I don't use a true low bar and jam myself under the bar because I like to spread my back. So I don't ever have this issue for the most part. Every now and again, a little bit when it gets heavy phases, but I don't get anything debilitating. Dad joke. <laughs> it's one of those things where you have to, one, improve mobility. It's a compression deal, so decompress. Dead, dead hangs, reverse grip dead hangs, especially single arm reverse grip dead hangs. Anything that's going to traction the shoulder out is going to help alleviate that compression pain in the first place. And even stretching your arm across the body because the rear delt gets smashed and you compress the nerve. Um, training your bicep in the elongated ranges of motion. So after you squat, it wouldn't hurt you to go over to the incline bench and do some very light incline curls to let it stretch and again, traction out and decompress. Those of you who love your biceps, that's a great way to get some extra bicep volume in for you. Jensen. <laughs> He's like, yes, <laughs> reason to do more curls. Um, but sometimes it's just a matter of undulating that low bar. So I've had certain lifters who had this really bad and all I did for them, and it was very, very effective, was undulate to low bar one week, high bar the next, low bar one week, high bar the next. And we didn't really change too much except for it allowed us to train that low bar heavier on a more frequent basis because it would be heavy low bar, lighter high bar heavy low bar, lighter high bar. So they actually got more practice. We just started sooner. So for a lot of lifters, I might start low bar squatting, directly low bar squatting all the way through like 10 weeks out. And for the ones that I had to undulate, I started at like 
16 weeks out instead. So then we go eight sessions with low bar every other week and come through. And then that helps mitigate the compression because they're not doing it on a week in week out basis. Doing five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 straight weeks of low bar squat for somebody who has that compression tendonitis is miserable and their bench goes to shit and their mood goes to shit because they're in pain. So it's a real easy fix to just work around that and don't low bar squat every single week. We're stuck in this sport where everyone thinks they have to low bar squat week in and week out. And then these are the same people who start bitching about their bicep tendonitis. And it's like, well, you chose it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the amount of times I've had like the exact same conversation with there where they're like, hey, can we, can we throw a low bar in? Because I, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't love low bar all the time um, for majority of people like I know that you don't either, but for majority of people, I don't love low bar all the time. I prefer high bar. It, I think it builds more and it shows that it builds more because there's such a significant difference between majority of people's low bar and high bar. And then they get so discouraged and they're so bummed out doing high bar because they're like, well, I suck at high bar. Well, you should probably get better at high bar then. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, so I prefer high bar because it's harder. Um, it makes you work harder for it. And if you improve your high bar, you're probably going to improve your low bar too. But the amount of times that I've had the same conversation with a lifter where they're like, hey, do you mind if um, I, I, I think I forgot how to low bar? Do you mind if we throw it in? And they'll be like six months out from me. And I'm like, yeah, like we can practice low bar like for a block, you know, like I don't mind throwing it back in for like a block here and there, like four or five weeks at a time just to kind of ingrain the pattern and keep it um, like, keep it at the forefront of their brain going into prep. Um, the issue is, is that they keep wanting to do it. So it'll be like that, you know, they'll do a four to five week block and they're like, well, can we, can we do another block of it? I, I just really, I really, I really, just, I like how it feels right now, you know, because it's stronger and they feel stronger and they'll lift. And, and I'm like, I don't recommend that. Like, I know that you have issues with tendonitis and I don't want that to flare up and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, I think, I think it's okay though. I don't feel it. And then, like clockwork every single time it's like two to three weeks after we have that conversation they're like my elbows really hurt I'm like yeah this is why I didn't want to keep it in for this long I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I can uh make recommendations like obviously I'm in charge of writing the program but I'm I want the lifter to be happy with the lifts you know if they're feeling good with their low bar then like yeah I'm gonna keep it in but like I have like I have a client named Logan who can't do low bar for more than like it's like every third week that he does low bar immediately. It's like, it goes from zero to a hundred between that second and third week. He just can't do it. Um, so like when he's in prep, we don't do low bar stuff until it's his last like two heavy squats because he cannot handle it. So I just, I don't, I understand that low bar is stronger for most people. I understand that it feels better and that makes you feel better and you feel stronger in the gym, but it is not worth the bicep or elbow pain that comes with it, doing it all the time. Some people can get away with it. Um, I am, knock on wood, fortunate enough that I don't get a lot of elbow tendonitis, so I can do it more often. Um, but also, my high bar sucks really bad, so <laughs> I should probably do more high bar. Yeah, but, that's in your program yeah. right now, that's what it is. You're exactly right, the ego hit is what bothers people because they can use sometimes 50 and in some cases 100 pounds more in low bar than they can in high bar, depending on how strong they are. And it's a blow their ego. But I'll, I'll give you a great example that people lose sight of won't talk in longevity. Uh, Coach Dallas Norris to an all-time world record that was built off high bar. Jen Ratzinger, all-time world record squat, both sleeves and wraps, high bar and front squat. Uh, Stacey Burr, three times broke the, the wrap squat with her low bar squat. And what did she tell you in every seminar? I fucking hated how much Trevor gave me high bar. Three fucking all-time world records and all-time wolves. High bar. Phil Herndon, when we 
did his conjugate system, he broke his, his world record. Every week we toggled his max effort from high bar, low bar. It was literally every week, high bar, low bar, high bar, low bar. Simple as that. And I just toggled it from, from uh, speed work with the high bar to heavy work with the low bar. Um, Danny Masinsek lived on high bar until literally eight weeks out because low bar would fuck up his bicep tendon. So he was all the way until eight weeks out from me and he broke it, uh, the 242 all-time world record, 953, living on high bar, loved high bar and could eat up high bar volume all day long with no problem. That's six different athletes that have created all-time world record squats, training and living on high bar. It's not that hard to figure out. Another great example of what high bar will benefit you if you can swallow your ego is your deadlift. The best pound for pound conventional deadlifter in the world is John Hack. John Hack squats high bar. His quad drive through the floor is astronomical. All he's gonna do is tighten his lats and that bar is coming up. He can compete at 198 and pulls 900 pounds and squats high bar. That should be enough selling point to anyone between six well, seven, six athletes, but seven other person who have these all-time world records and these incredible deadlifts, high bar. <laughs> I'm sorry, it sucks. Embrace the suck. Yeah. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, okay. What other sport would you do if you were lifting? <laughs> right now I'm getting my ass handed to me doing uh, sambo and boxing. Um, I could see myself doing something that's physical still. Uh, I don't know that I'll take pure boxing, pure kickboxing, or pure grappling, or even MMA um, as that. I would probably pick one discipline, like just grappling or just boxing or something like that. I don't even know if I would compete in it, but I like the physical aspect and the learning, the purpose of the learning and skill learning. It's frustrating as hell to suck at something. And so it feels good to suck at something because it means I'm increasing my physical IQ. I'm learning more about how my body moves, how it responds. It's a totally different energy system. It does take away from my lifting right now. I'll have to cut back somewhat as I get closer to a meet. But I would like the aspect of staying in a physical sport because that's what feels good to me. It feels good to train and get the endorphins out, I get the frustration out, I get the stress out. And uh, it keeps me in good physical health and condition. So definitely something like that. Uh, I mean, if we're like still, if we're still talking about like, quote unquote, strength sports or whatever you want to say, I think I've, all, I've answered this before that I would do CrossFit. But if we're talking like any sport, um, athletics wise i would probably go back to volleyball or i would do track again um there is no pressure for me to play volleyball now so i don't hate it as much anymore that was why i quit playing is because it was like expected of me to do to play at a high level and continuously travel and it was at a time when i was a teenager and i wanted to be a stupid teenager and get in a lot of trouble so of course i didn't want to play volleyball um and and, but like, you know, it was just, it was pressure. I was pressured to play. So it probably would have, I probably would have enjoyed it if I had just been allowed to play it in the way that I wanted to, whether that was, you know, uh, like at one point I was playing for school and then also doing a club team outside of that. So I was constantly playing and like, I would have to, I'd have tournaments out of state and then it would be like on weekends that I wasn't like tournaments out of state. It would be on weekends that there weren't games for school, but then when I had games for school, that would be the following weekend. So it was like, I never had any time to like exist. Um, but I'd probably go, I'd probably go back to volleyball. I do miss it sometimes, especially like, it'd probably specifically be sand volleyball because it's way more fun and I live in Florida, so it's easy. <laughs> Rub it into all of them that you're actually experiencing like 70 degree weather right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was actually really hot earlier. Uh, <laughs> Worse. <laughs> yesterday, yesterday was really warm i think i don't know i don't remember um but yeah i think i probably if if out of the, 
the realm of like strength sports, I'd probably go to like beach volleyball. Yeah, it, it's once you're into the physicality of sport, it's really hard to get out of that. And I know athletes have that thing where they they their main sport goes, they need to find an outlet. So I actually really like this question because a lot of people struggle with that when they're, they don't want to power up anymore, they can't power up for whatever reason, they need a physical outlet. It's important to stay within that realm, not necessarily strength sports, but some type of physical out, outlet because it's going to keep your mental health in much better shape. Yeah. And, you know, you see the ex-athlete syndrome where they do nothing and they gain 50 pounds and they're depressed and whatever, you know, that's because they stopped doing anything. Their body had a system and a habit that it was used to every day and they just all of a sudden stop it without replacing it. It helps. Yeah. Um, for a little while I was, like, I did a 5k around Thanksgiving and for a little while I was running like once a week recently. Um, I put a, I put a pause on that temporarily cause I wasn't eating enough at that time to like, wasn't eating enough to constitute me training five days a week and then trying to run twice a week. I was just kind of like running myself into the ground and I wasn't focused on eating. So trying to get like my better habits back of eating where I, what I need to and getting better with performing and lifting again before I add the running back in. But that was very nice for me to have because yeah, powerlifting is strength and it's a sport and whatnot, but it's a little bit different athletically than like playing volleyball was or running track was or something so running even though like I would do like 400 meter sprints where it'd be like you know 400 meter sprint uh jog with jog another 400 another 400 meter sprint and then I randomly Maria talked me into doing a I say talked me into but she didn't talk me into doing the 5k she asked if anyone was dumb enough to do a 5k with her and I said I was <laughs> so <laughs> what a way to twist your arm <laughs> <laughs> she just asked to do she just asked me to do a spartan race that i've never done in april and i'm like yeah sure why not <laughs> <laughs> this is once of every child and like their mother's like don't touch the stove it's hot as soon as they turn their back like, <laughs> <laughs> that's me yeah, to some degree like, you tell me it's dumb i'm gonna go do it show you <laughs> okay um Next question is struggling in bench right off the chest. Use pin presses and dumbbell work on dynamic day? Question mark. Well, it, it doesn't really matter if it's dynamic or any type of structure or periodization program you have. What you've identified is a weak spot, which is struggling off the chest. So that's where you have to spend more time and build up more pec mass or pec muscle. So you know, deep stretch dumbbell presses, pause dumbbell presses from that deep stretch position. Um, uh, buffalo bar work where you're going extended range of motion, things that are going to challenge you through that range of motion. Because if you're weak off the chest, then you need to prioritize spending more time building off the chest. You can't just pin press because a pin press is probably going to be above the chest. That's not where you're weak. It's playing to your strength. You have to spend time where you suck. So it was like the video I put up of extended range Bulgarian split squats. Like, you know, we have to train below parallel. Why would you take your accessories above parallel? You're not building anything that's already there. That's the easiest part of the squat. The hardest part's the bottom. Make your accessories match that. So make your accessories, I don't care, dynamic effort, max day, whatever you're doing, whatever your program, but make your accessories match your weakness so you can get stronger. Take your dumbbell presses lower. Pause your dumbbell presses lower. Work on, on uh, dumbbell chest flies so you can get that extended range of motion, build your pecs up. Uh, deep range of motion dips. The, the extended range of motion bench press. If you don't have a buffalo bar that can take you extended range of motion, then raise your feet up, raise your knees up, and lose your arch so you're taking through extended range of motion. Things that are going to challenge you in your weakness is how you're going to bring it up. I'm going to answer this with the depends um, because, like, if you are just weak in the chest like Trevor's talking about, you can see that with, like, 
that's a good indication of that is like if your shortened range of motion movements like your floor presses or your board work um, if those things are just as strong as your or relatively almost as strong as your regular bench then like your triceps are super strong but your chest is probably weak so then like what he's talking about with extended range of motion is probably the best thing for you buffalo bar um pausing your uh, dumbbell presses in the bottom wide grip bench press can help um, i like the flat back stuff too or if you're someone who um, just absolutely flattens and they don't know how to maintain tension when they get to the chest. Like I've seen so many people that just let the bar drop to their chest. And then like, not only does the bar drop, but their whole entire body drops and they have no, they've created no tension at all. So then it doesn't matter how strong your chest is. Like you're just not going to be able to press it off because you've created no tension to rebound off of. So then, yeah, something like, like he mentioned uh, pin press in this question, like something like pin press is going to work. Uh, or help because then you can focus on like really maintaining that tension on the pins. But in this instance, I prefer something like a soft touch bench press or some people call it a t-shirt bench press um, because it forces you to not let that bar sink into your chest. It forces you to really stop the bar once you feel it graze your shirt, hold that tension there and then press back up. So, I mean, the answer to this is kind of, it depends. It just depends on where your weakness is. But majority of the time, people that struggle right off the chest just have really shitty pecs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're building the pecs and still not going anywhere, then it's probably a stability issue. Yeah. Um, let's see. We got like nine minutes. Okay. Okay. How do you develop a better coach's eye? Watch every single lift and see if you can identify where energy leak happens. It's literally that, like stare at lifts, stare at lifts. When I was when I was developing my eye many, many, many years ago, that's really what I did. Uh, I wasn't watching the outliers who were strong regardless. I was watching videos that anyone was posting to back then it was Facebook. You know, videos that anyone was posting to Facebook, looking at your lifts and looking at things. And what my eyes are trying to do is look at movement that shouldn't be there. What I mean by that is it, it, you know, I'll be able to see if someone's tapping their feet while they're bench pressing. I'll be able to see if someone's you know, overly pruning and collapsing at the foot. I'll be able to see if, you know, if their knees are moving, why? You know, sometimes it's the adductors. Adductors can be strong. It's not an issue. You know, slight knee cave is not an issue. But if it's excessive and they're losing stability, why? So look for the movement that doesn't belong there first, and then you'll be able to identify why. And you can see that often, like, for example, a deadlift. If the bar is floating away from them to start, then they're not creating external rotation. They're not creating lat tension. They're losing their lat tension. So the hips pop up, and as their body shoots back, it balances by the bar forward, or they push it forward with their shins. Like Riley said with the bench press, if you drop down and you sink down, but you're not using a heavy leg drive, like a drop and drive kind of style, and you just say drops, you lack stability, movement that didn't belong there. If you're squatting and things are collapsing, and your knees are moving, your feet are moving, or the bar is pushing forward, why? The coach's eye is just finding the movement that doesn't belong there and then identifying why it was caused. Was it poor bracing, poor rooting, poor mobility, and so forth. People overemphasize the coach's eye and think that it's, there's an ideal technique. Technique is very individual to that person's build and structure. You can't create a perfect technique for every individual. You have to understand where was the movement that didn't belong there first and what are they lacking that created that or caused it? I gotta, yeah, I gotta be honest. The thing that I generally do is when I look at a video, my question is what looks weird? Uh, like every, every body is specifically different. So it's not always going to be the same thing. Like you may watch one video and you'll see that, um, someone has one, like 
someone has an issue of their feet are pronating. And then so you automatically, every single video you see that everyone's feet are pronating. So you start to develop this thing where it's like, you think that, you know, uh, uh, when you see a yellow car or when you buy a yellow car, all you see are yellow cars. Like you start to kind of imagine, what was that? Particular activation system, the, the temporary confirmation bias. Yeah, I can never remember what the name of that is, but um, the, uh, you start to see that. So you have to, one, you have to train yourself not to assume that everyone has the same issue. And even if someone does have the same issue, even if you've watched three videos of people squatting and all three of them have knee cave, doesn't mean that the reason why their knee cave is happening is all the same reason. So it's more, uh, you one, get out of that mind. Like you have to like, you have to clear your cachet of <laughs> history in every video. You know, so like if, you, if you're watching one client video, and you see an issue, then you have to like wipe the slate clean for the next lifter. Like get that, get get their lifts out of your mind for the next person's lift. Um, but I usually always ask myself what looks weird. Um, I did, I have spent a long time in athletics. So I do understand how bodies move and I understand like how my body moves. So that is a benefit to me. And it's a benefit for Trevor as a coach. Um, but you can generally, if there's something that's off, and you've watched enough or you're just starting out you can generally tell that there is something weird like if there's something wrong something looks weird and you're like that looks off like that's generally my first question is like what looks off or what looks weird and then from there i kind of start at the center like 99 90% of people's issues is generally from bracing so i will look at bracing first and then i'll kind of travel outwards you know like okay was their bracing okay? Then yes. And then I try to kind of travel outwards towards the appendages and stuff to see like what looks weird from there. But that's generally my question every single time I open a video is like, what looks weird? Or like, what looks good? Like, what are they doing that is an improvement upon it? So it's not necessarily like any magic formula for making it better. It's just like you watch hundreds of videos every single day for multiple years and you'll start to pick up on like what looks weird and what looks weird is generally what needs to be fixed so you you develop that awareness over time but it doesn't just like happen in one day some people are going to be a little bit better at it naturally just because they spent more time in strength sports or athletics um but you're just gonna your eyes are gonna bleed from watching so many videos so you'll you'll learn something um okay we'll do this we'll do this one as our last one i hope it's fun <laughs> <laughs> Uh, favorite Blumhouse movie? See, this is this is easier for you than for me, and you're also more picky than I am. Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite Blumhouse. I'm really hard with favorite or anything. Like, I, I can't single out anything ever as a favorite, but there's things I certainly enjoyed. And I remember answering this question uh, over the last year. I really enjoyed The Black Phone and um, Barbarian, two like sleeper movies because The Black Phone looked like they gave you the entire movie in the preview, which they kind of almost did, but still great and gripping the watch and there's differences and there's things and sequences throughout it which made it fantastic and the acting was great and then the barbarian gives you like none of the movie <laughs> in the preview they give you the, what the what the premise is and for the first 20 minutes you're thinking that's the premise in the movie and then it goes off in this total other different direction but the qualities that both of them have is they made you so freaking uncomfortable in many facets and that's why i really like them um uh, I just saw Annabelle as well, which is like another like Blumhouse movie. And that was great. Like they're, they're just killing the game right now because it's a different type of horror where you're just uncomfortable for a multitude of reasons. And they're also thought provoking. They make you think about things, which is really cool. Uh, Blumhouse is just fantastic right now. So kudos to them. But from the last, 
last two, the last year, those would probably be my top two, which would be like the Black Phone and uh, the Barbarian. Barbarian was really twisted. So I'm gonna be honest, I don't think Barbarian is Blumhouse. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. I'm not 100%. I just wrote that article. And I remember looking at the list of because I had to there there are like um, 100 107 I think horror movies made by Blumhouse since their inception. And I don't think Barbarian was on there because that definitely would have been in my top 20. So but like, I'm not I'm not 100% positive. So I'm not going to <laughs> it's kind of everything. <laughs> I'm not gonna say with certainty that it's not Blumhouse because generally with horror movies, um, production studios and directors aren't my thing. Like that's not like I know that some people are really into um, into specific directors and like whatever they direct. That's not necessarily my thing. Is more of like the uh, niches and subgenres and the tropes of horror movies. That's more my thing. But I'm like 98% positive that Barbarian is not Blumhouse. I'll take um, your house, not mine. Yeah. So I'm not. And also, you said Annabelle, and I know you meant Megan. Did I say Annabelle? Yeah, I meant Megan. Sorry, doll. Suck, <laughs> um, but Annabelle. Uh, the beginnings or Genesis, whatever the hell is what that was good. Creation. Annabelle what? creation. Ever. Yeah. Um. So my answer to this movie. Um, so I wrote that top 20 list and that wasn't my favorite. That was, uh, objectively speaking on like what the best Blumhouse movies are. Get Out objectively is the best Blumhouse movie just from its accolades, how much it won, um, the plot line, all that stuff like that, that is definitively probably the best Blumhouse movie right now, but that's not my opinion. Um, my opinion, I think, for best Blumhouse movie, and this one always sticks out to me for a multitude of reasons, is Insidious. I love the Insidious uh, franchise. Not necessarily the most recent one, which I think is like the last key or something. Yeah. Um, but the original Insidious is probably my favorite Blumhouse because, one, it's weird. Like, it's it kind of combines like the supernatural sci-fi kind of thing with horror and like jump scares and um, like kind of more traditional tropes with like more experimental horror. It's also visually really stunning and that's important to me. Like there's lots of really like bright pops of reds. Um, like the further is like, when I think of the further in the movie, it's very red and it's very foggy. Um, and their, their like color palette for regular life is pretty drab like it's very um dark blues grays whites blacks like it's not something that is uh, exciting looking so you know that something like sinister is kind of happening um so i really like insidious for that reason i also think that they do a really good job with their soundtrack to the movie like uh i just i'm waiting for an article to get released about this but like they used that tiptoe through the tulip song by tiny tim that is so weird and it just like it's the perfect fit for that song um so i think that uh i also i'm drawing a blank on her name um the lady that's in insidious that is the medium or like the psychic that's in it i'm drawing it lin shay uh she is fantastic as well so that would probably be my favorite blumhouse movie yeah without getting too detailed <laughs> getting too detailed you like what you like and you like it for a reason that's fair enough as long as you have reasons and intention behind it, I'm gonna follow it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like random. I like reason. All right. Well, that's uh, that's our episode this week. 
Thank you guys for supporting Culture Nutra. Thank you for supporting the Cultivating Strength Program. If you need programming but don't need coaching, there's a Cultivating Strength Program. You can find it in both of our bios. It is free the first week if you just want to try it, so hop on to that. And if you need to reach Riley for coaching, you just go to rileypresnell.gmail.com. What is it? Uh, for the My website is rileypresnell.com. There you go. And if you want to coach me, you just DM me or send me an email. Email is preferred because I can send you my questionnaire that way. I'm going to DM me. I'm going to tell you to email me anyways. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you to all of you guys who share the podcast every week or just a comment that you like it or whatever. That's really cool. We appreciate that. And we will see you next week. Riley, you have anything you want to add? No. <laughs> I didn't think so. All right. Have a good one. Bye.